Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, thank you for joining us on this week's episode of the AccuWeather podcast. And Andy, uh, this week we are talking to COO Evan Myers for a historical look back at the Dust Bowl. Yeah, the Dust Bowl, a big, significant weather event in American history, which changed things and in many ways, uh, not for the better, and was uh, obviously a big inspiration for the classic John Steinbeck novel, The Graves of Wrath. Right, so we're talking to him about that. And then we also have our morning meteorologist here at the AccuWeather Network, Bernie Reno, and he's talking about some of the dust storms recently that have been occurring in the southwest and these very large haboobs. Mm -hmm. What are they and how do they form? How are they different from a regular dust storm? So we will be talking about all of that. So stay tuned. From our global headquarters in State College, Pennsylvania, it's the AccuWeather Podcast. Here's your host, Regina Miller. Well, I'm sitting down today with Evan Myers. He is our Senior Vice President and Chief Operating Officer here at AccuWeather. And, you know, I so enjoyed the last podcast we did on Galveston, the hurricane there. And so I was like, you know what we need to talk about is the Dust Bowl. Well, so I well, you, brought you, in. you You go from I go like from, horrible well, flooding to well, no I, no moisture at all. Oh, I have to go in extremes. You there know what you I go. mean? I got really, Understood. really wet. So what's the other extreme of that? We're going to go really, really dry. So we're, we're talking about, we talked about one of the worst natural or nat- disasters in American history. And we're going to talk about another one. Right. And this one is uh, kind of unique because uh, it's called the man-made uh the greatest man-made catastrophe. Well, it's a combination of humans and the weather uh, conspiring together. But, you know, when you think about all these great disasters that have occurred involving the weather, uh, many of them are a combination of the human element and the weather element. When we talked about the Galveston storm, the fact that uh, it wouldn't have been as great a disaster if all those people weren't living on a sandbar in the middle of uh, in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico, so to speak. And and Katrina and New Orleans, if uh, you know, folks weren't living, all, all those hundreds of thousands of people living below sea level so right. that the water can come rushing in. It wouldn't have been such a disaster. So uh, it usually these things are a combination of both. Well, to set the stage, um, Evan, the Dust Bowl initially extended from West Texas and Oklahoma on up to southwest Nebraska and westward into east Colorado and eastern New Mexico. Part of the problem was it ended up becoming like a farming area. So tell me why, what caused that phenomenon? Because you would think it's kind of counterintuitive to make that a farming area. So if you've ever been to that, or anyone's ever been to that landscape, and and I've been through that area a number of times, from the base of the Rocky Mountains, uh, eastward uh, almost uh, to places like Kansas City, uh, it's pretty flat. Uh, The... uh, uh, it it goes from about 6,500 uh, feet above sea level around Denver all the way down to about 2,500 feet above sea level in Missouri. But that's a very slow and steady tilt, and it, it it's not, uh, you know, you can't tell it from the naked eye. And 
the earliest uh, European explorers to that area called it the Great American Desert. Oh, so right. um, it just uh, you know when you when you think about that, uh, you would think that if an area is called a desert, it might not be the most ideal place to <laughs> right. start growing it's not a good crops. Name for that. <laughs> uh, and until uh, really uh, the end uh, or after uh, the Civil War. Very few crops were grown there. Virtually nothing was grown there. There was a lot of grassland, uh, just prairies, uh, virtually no trees, uh, except uh, near stream beds and and places like that, maybe a few hills here and there. There aren't very many, and that's it. So it was flat with grassland and not many people living there Mm -hmm. until after the end of the Civil War. Right. So why why did this happen? Why did they go there? Well, at first, the government started, the U.S. government started to uh, encourage people to move there uh, as the population continued to expand and start to grow crops. And obviously, uh, that started in the eastern part of that area, in eastern Kansas. So there's some rivers and and eastern Nebraska, so it was a little bit more moist. And not only where there's the moisture from the rivers, but uh, the actual annual rainfall in those areas was higher on average. But the farther west you got, the less the average annual rainfall. And so much of that area from east of Denver all the way into central Kansas and central Nebraska averages less than 20 inches of rain a year, and in many places only 10 inches of rain. So initially, uh, the government allowed people to get about 140 acres uh, as a land grant. There are a number of uh, different uh, bills passed through Congress that gave away a lot of land that was a uh, mostly they wanted to populate it they did that was mostly government government land some of uh, some of it or a lot of it the railroads got from building the transcontinental railroad and other spurs of that but so it started to encourage people to move and over the next 20 or 25 years until the mid 1880s uh, a good number of people for at least that time moved there started to growing crops but the yield in the crops wasn't that great. Now, that wasn't a particularly dry period from uh, during that 25-year or 20-year period from uh, 1865 to 1885, but it wasn't wet either. And so in order to be sustain uh, the agriculture and sustain grains for grazing and so on, the government gradually upped the amount of acreage they were giving away. So at one point, I think it was close to 500 acres you would get instead of 140, so that you would grow grow more because right. the yield was so low. Then in the mid-1880s, uh, a mini drought hit, and uh, people started moving away. And that lasted for maybe about 10 years. But then for a period of time, the moisture returned, and uh, it started to get, get wet. And people started to farm there again. It's interesting. In that area I outlined where the, yeah. where the dust bowl started, from uh, northeastern... Uh, New Mexico through the Texas Panhandle, Oklahoma Panhandle, and into western Kansas. From uh, 1900 to 1910, the amount of farming land doubled. And then from 1910 to 1925, or almost to 1930, it tripled again. And so there's obviously a lot of a lot of agriculture, a lot of farming going on there. And during the 1920s, it was a particularly moist time period and so people oh well this is great so they could well not quite like they could in the east but they could farm and so they started to do that and then land speculators started selling land and uh they they, there was a phrase that was called uh, rain follows the plow 
And so <laughs> that was what that, that's what that, that's what real estate. Was that their uh, that, that was their gimmick? That was uh, yeah. That. Rain follows the plow. So that was the um, that's what a lot of the the land speculators, the real estate people, were pushing on people to come out there and buy land. And so uh, right through the twenties, things were going okay, and then it all turned around. And uh, and over the following ten years, it was basically turned into a great not a uh, returned to a great american desert and to a great american disaster true and so sad um here are some accounts from survivors that aired on the pbs american experience documentary surviving the dust bowl the farmhouses looked terrible the uh, dust was deposited clear up to the windowsills and the farmhouse cleared up to the windowsills and even about half of the front door was blocked by this sand. And if people inside wanted to get out, they had to climb out to the window, get out with a shovel, and shovel out the front door. Everything was full of dust. If you were cooking a meal, you'd end up with dust in your food, and you would feel it in your teeth. You'd start to eat, and when you would drink water or something, you would uh, grit down, and you always felt like you had grit between your teeth, you know. It was, it felt terrible. So clearly, uh, life was very hard. Um, and then prior to cultivation in this area, I mean, there had been occasional droughts, but the nature of the land seemed to preserve itself, right? I mean, how did it all change as farming here progressed? Mechanization allowed for even more farming. So with the advent of the gasoline-powered engine, uh, deep plowing started to take place. And so they tremendously expanded uh, the amount of land that was uh, under cultivation in the late 20s and even into the early 30s when the drought was going on. Most of that area was grassland, tall grasses that was controlled, that controlled the amount of moisture in the soil. So uh, the moisture stayed in the soil, a lot of nutrients uh, occurred, uh, stayed in the soil, and uh, so it was a lot, a lot more moist, and uh, the grass held the soil in place. That area is very windy in the wintertime, and the grasslands, even though the grass wasn't really uh, growing much in the winter, mm-hmm. uh, held it in place. So the early, uh, the early part of the century, there was a lot of mechanization, and uh, so life wasn't bad as the, these plows uh, went through the area. But then when it turned dry, it, it all went south very quickly within a period of just a couple of years. And uh, the, the rain shut off, uh, the crops wouldn't grow, and people started to become destitute very rapidly because a lot of the folks there didn't own their own places, or they, if they did, they had big mortgages, and there was no way to pay for it because they, now they had no crops. And uh, it just kept feeding on itself and, and getting worse. And eventually, if you look at the 30s as a whole, just that decade uh, was the greatest mass migration in U.S. history. Almost 4 million people left the area and migrated someplace else. There's been other... Uh, greater migrations uh, of, of folks in, in U.S. history than that, but not in that short period of time. Right. Well, and I, you know, I've seen some of the uh, video of where people describe, and you see the video of them having to shovel. It was like snow. The 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 dirt was like snow at their houses. Well, it, so uh, with the uh, uh, with the crops failing with uh, all that grassland gone and those grasses holding the moisture in and then some and the farming techniques I talked about deep plowing so not only did it not just uh, turn over the soil in the first few inches it got pretty deep and so it really dried the soil out 
as you go deeper, uh, which uh, oftentimes in periods of drought in any place uh, in, on the globe, if you if there, there's subsoil moisture that's there, but uh, this that didn't exist because of the the deep plowing. So when the winds kicked in, uh, the soil was all available to be to be picked up and blown around and. There was a lot of cotton grown there, and cotton doesn't have a very uh, deep root. And uh, in the fields where cotton was grown, they didn't grow any winter wheat, anything like that. And so there was nothing grown in the wintertime. In addition, some of the techniques they used were to burn all the remaining crop when the crop was harvested to get rid of weeds. And that deprived oh, wow. the soil of nutrients, <laughs> yeah. and uh, which also helped keep it moist. So all these different factors came into play. So when the, the w- strong winds in the wintertime started to dry things out, um, it just it broke the soil apart and made it into these fine particles and started blowing it all over the place. Uh, there were th- descriptions that you couldn't see any more than three feet in front of you when some of the winds whipped up, and not just in the, um, in the winter, but uh, throughout the year. Uh, there were huge rolling dust storms uh, made it all the way to the East Coast. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, with... Uh, you know, when you think of a storm system now that might have some rain with it and, and or windy conditions or whatever that, that, that moves across the country, well, these windstorms today don't really pick up anything because there's nothing to pick up. In those days, they picked up dust, and the dust extended uh, tens of thousands of feet into the air and just rolled eastward and rolled through Chicago. There was uh, in, in the Boston, New York City, all these places. In fact, uh, in the mid-30s, I don't remember what year it was, in New England, there was red snow because the dust was still so much in the air that when the, the, the uh, ice crystals started to form for snow, they attached themselves to some of this dust. And so the snow that fell actually had a reddish tint to it because of all this red soil that was picked up from places like Oklahoma and Kansas. Right. I, I heard... Um the expression black cloud, I think it was called, the black cloud. And well, there were several different periods of uh, when there were some of these extreme storms. And, uh, you know, it was just it was black clouds, it was called black storms, because it would turn from day to night because things became so uh, uh, the sun so obscured and you just couldn't see very far at all. It was it was it was pretty miserable. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we have uh, the, the we have. Uh, some pop culture about that. I mean, John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath was about folks in Oklahoma, Okies, moving to California because there was a lot of migration from that area. Uh, Woody Guthrie grew up in in that area in the Oklahoma panhandle region and wrote a lot of songs about uh, what was going on then. And a lot of people left a lot of those states from the Dakotas southward into Oklahoma uh, gained no population at all while the country was gaining population uh, gained no population off from the 30s through the 50s. Well, so, and what I wondered, too, was, you know, that, what was done there agriculturally, did that contribute to ongoing dry weather there, even beyond just, you know, climatologically speaking? Did it actually cause it to be drier than it would be? Well, it certainly caused the soil to be drier than it than it would have been otherwise. If the the natural grassland had remained, that kind of natural selection that occurred helped keep it moist. So when that was all gone, and then with the deep plowing and the turning over the soil, it certainly allowed the soil to be dried out much faster than if things had been left alone. That is absolutely the case. Uh, And uh, so the other thing is with less moisture in the soil— 
that can impact the amount of moisture that is evaporated into the atmosphere. Not right. by a lot, but by enough that it could make uh, somewhat of a difference in some places. So, yeah, that also contributed. It really, uh, after uh, Franklin Roosevelt became president, a new deal occurred. In the 30s, they started to looking at the, look at the farming techniques, and they changed the techniques, or they started to work with people to change the techniques. So there was different kind of uh, uh, terraced farming and so on, and, and fields were, were plowed in different directions so that uh, you know, the, would, there would be less uh, soil erosion. At one point, it was estimated that 75% of the topsoil in that dust bowl area had blown away. Well, topsoil is a combination of organic materials and so on. It takes a long time to replenish that. So even though they started to these new farming techniques, it really wasn't until the 50s that those areas really started to recover. Oh, wow. So that's very long, uh, ongoing effort. It, uh, they, um, that area is still so dry. Now. I mean, we've been dealing with wildfires down in that area. Well, it is a, it's, a, it's a dry area, yeah, and, a occas- dry area. and occasionally mm-hmm. there'll be years and when it's wet. And mm-hmm. in the 20s, that decade was wetter than normal. But the 30s were among the driest ever. And it's interesting because by, getting, by drying out like that, and putting those dust particles in the air, it did suppress moisture. And it's really interesting because if you look up the state records, and, and you, if you include um, uh, Washington, D.C. in that, so you have 51, 51 states, so you have Alaska and Hawaii in that, 26 of the state all-time high temperature records, so more than half, were set in the 30s. Oh, wow. And 14 of those were set in 1936. 14 state records in one year. So if records have been kept everywhere since the U.S. Signal Corps was established in 1876, and some places even longer than that. But if you think back and think there's 142 years of records, one year accounted for more than 25% or 27% of the records, record high temperatures in in, in every state. I mean, that's amazing. When if you if that happened today, people would be you know scream screaming a lot about climate change. Right. But it ha- but it happened then, and those records stand today. Those twenty six state records from the '30s stand today. Those fourteen state records from nineteen thirty six stand today. It's it's pretty amazing wow. when you think about it. And they it's not just down in the middle of the country, all the way east. The record high temperature in the state of Pennsylvania, Phoenixville. 111 degrees occurred in 1936. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating. Well, thank you for talking to me about this today. Oh, absolutely. It's really interesting. Always so great to have Evan on with some of that background information, isn't it, Andy? Absolutely. I mean, one of the greatest things about weather is just it's so rich in history and has so many impacts on history. And, of course, if you missed his episode where he appeared talking about the Galveston hurricane, you can find that on Episode 8 of the AccuWeather Podcast, available wherever you find your favorite shows. Just look for the AccuWeather Podcast and subscribe. Well, to follow up on our discussion about the Dust Bowl, I decided to bring in Bernie Reno from the AccuWeather Network. Thanks for sitting down with me today, Bernie. Anytime you need Regina, as you know, my father-in-law know. is a <laughs> big fan of Regina Miller. He doesn't care much for Bernie Reno, um, but he does, and I'm still waiting for that autograph picture that I'm going to give, perhaps a Christmas present. Uh, oh, really? Okay, yeah. so I'll have to do that. I'll make sure I get that together for him, but um, so. So, Bernie, the reason I brought you in today is because we were talking about the Dust Bowl, and lately on the network, we've had, uh, on the AccuWeather Network, we've had several uh, videos of these 
haboobs. These. Mm-hmm. Uh, so first of off, I'm going to have you explain the difference between a haboob and a dust storm. Well, it is interesting because I had always thought a dust storm, a haboob, is a dust storm. So, and you yeah. know what? I think overall, from a general definition, that is correct. But I, I've got a lot of friends, believe it or not. In, in, <laughs> but your father-in-law like still, your father-in-law still thinks I'm uh, the best. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I've met a lot of meteorologists um, and, and different forecasters across the land. One of my good friends, uh, Amber Sullins, is the chief meteorologist for ABC 15 in Phoenix. And we were talking about, and I actually brought this question, mm-hmm. what is the difference? And in her mind, and the people in the Southwest, a haboob is just a bigger dust storm. It is the kind of dust storm that causes major problems. It is bigger in size, also has a, a lot more dust. So in, in that sense, a haboob to people in the Southwest is not your normal dust uh, right. storm. They it know is if a they much, hear that's much coming. bigger yeah. event that causes more and more problems. Okay, so what are the components that cause one of these haboobs or a large dust storm? You know, typically it's any system that has winds. If you have strong enough winds, you're going to be able to pick the dust. And you know, we get dust storms not only during the, the summer months, but oftentimes in the winter months when you have a strong storm that comes across the Intermountain West, goes across the Rockies. On the southern side of that storm, you can get wind gusts easily, 50, 60 miles per hour, and, and it produces these dust storms. But I think the the ones that we see the most are more the localized big dust storms. And these, believe it or not, are often caused by thunderstorms. Then most right. people would say, well, wait a minute. Thunderstorm has rain, but oftentimes, even here, uh, you know, anywhere where you have thunderstorms, oftentimes before the thunderstorm hits and before the rain starts, what do you get? You get wind. And that wind oftentimes is propagated well in advance of the thunderstorms. So what ends up happening is it's almost like a mini cold front out ahead of those thunderstorms. You have the wind that can gust to 50 to 60 miles per hour, and that's what picks up the dust and then transports it. Now, oftentimes in the southwest, unlike the northeast, when you get a thunderstorm in the northeast, you usually get rain. But sometimes in the southwest, because the air is so dry, not all of that rain reaches the ground. So you do get dry thunderstorms, thunderstorms that have wind, thunderstorms that have lightning, and thunderstorms that have enough wind to cause these big dust storms. Right. And, and you know, the other thing you and I were talking about a little bit earlier on on our meteorologist floor about uh, the fact that there is uh, fungus, different things like that, into the ground. And I want to play you a real quick clip because I, I talked to Reed. Mm-hmm. Last week, I was filling in uh, for you, actually, on the network, so I should have told your father-in-law to tune in. Yes. (laughs) But but anyway, so I was talking to Reed, and we were talking about uh, valley sickness. So I'm going to play this clip for you uh, when he was talking about that. These dust storms will sweep across the uh, uh, very top layers of the desert floor, and not only is there dirt, sand, and dust in that top layer, but there's also fungus, bacteria, all kinds of bad things that if you breathe in, those spores can embed in your lungs and then uh, get you sick for a little while. And so there are long-term impacts from these dust storms too. Yeah, so we were talking about that, Mm -hmm. uh, and you were saying some of that's supposed to be there, right? You know, and when I was talking again to my my, my friend Amber Sullins, she was telling me that in the Southwest, there is a protective crust on top of the ground that keeps this dust at bay. In a sense, it's not like a blanket that keeps the crust down, but you, you have this 
uh, lichen and moss, it's this crust that's held together by this bacteria that Reed mentioned. It's called the cyanobacteria. It's almost in a sense the cyanobacteria holds the lichen and the moss together to perform, to um, uh, so produce kind of this protective crust yeah. that keeps the dust at bay, almost as if, if you were wetting the ground yeah. and keeping the dust wet, keeping it heavier so it would not be easily pr projected into the atmosphere. But what has happened is a lot of the natural uh, terrain has been disturbed in the Southwest, whether it's, it's cars or off wheels or any kind of tire tracks or many, many people are now living in the Southwest. So what happens is when there's any kind of a building going on and there's any kind of construction, it's disturbing this protective crust that keeps a lot of the dust on the ground. So once you disturb that ground, while the bacteria, the cyanobacteria can grow quickly, the uh, moss and the lichens takes a long, long time to form. So when you get rid of that protective crust, where do you think the dust is going to go? Right. It's going to go up into the atmosphere. And I think there is a human element to these dust storms, why they're all so bigger. There's also the long-term drought. I don't want to uh, certainly underplay that. But again, and we've seen this with other natural disasters, like what we saw in the Ellicott City in Maryland. Oh, yes, with yes, yeah. A lot of the problems they were having was the building that has occurred that is not allowed to the water to seep into the ground. It runs off. You see this in a lot of major cities. Well, this is somewhat similar. The human interaction, the fact that we are disturbing the natural forces to keep the dust settled on the ground is also a reason why we're seeing more of these dust storms and a reason why they're much bigger. Right. I think it's so fascinating it uh, that you're mentioning that because it was so uh, interesting that that was what happened with the Dust Bowl, that there was the human element and how they did agriculture. Mm -hmm. And then the natural, you know, you have the drought and you have those conditions normally. So I think it's fascinating that we see kind of the same scenario again. So I want to thank you for taking a few minutes to sit oh, down with me. Oh, it's not a problem. My pleasure at all. My father-in-law is still <laughs> waiting for that autograph picture. That is coming his way. I think that it needs to be the two of us in it together. And then, well, I you told know, you what you should write. What? You have the best son-in-law. That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> yes. Your son-in-law is my inspiration. Yes. So, <laughs> all right. Thanks, Bernie. You're welcome. So thanks to our guest on this week's episode of the AccuWeather Podcast. Next week's episode is about monsoons and also uh, some of the heavy flooding issues we've had in the desert southwest. And if you can't wait until the next episode, you can always check out the AccuWeather Daily. It's available everywhere where you find the AccuWeather podcast, but it is also available on the Google Assistant app. That's right. If you have the Google Home, all you got to do is enable that. Go to Settings and News, Add News Source, and you'll see AccuWeather Daily. It's under the Science category, and you can get your daily top trending news story with the AccuWeather Daily on Google Assistant today. Thanks for tuning in. We're back next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Be sure to subscribe to the AccuWeather podcast, giving you the stories behind the weather, discussions on trending weather topics, and so much more. New episodes every Thursday. Just search for AccuWeather on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your favorite shows. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.